we started this podcast, we promised you, our listeners, that we would not be making Gacy the primary focus of the show. Obviously, he is always lurking in the shadows, and this cannot be avoided, as after all, he is a large part of the narrative. However, we have persevered to hone in on the details of the investigation, the arrest, and in short order, the trial. And in doing so, we have uncovered some incredible, shocking, and startling new facts regarding a very old case. We've also maintained our focus on the victims, the young men whom the thief of lives snatched that very thing from, their precious lives. Now, at this point, I've told most of the people that are close to me personally, so now I think it's time to tell you all the same thing. And that is that I have become absolutely convinced that me doing this podcast at this exact point in time is an act of fate. This is what I was meant to do. I can follow the arc of my life back to my childhood and specifically indicate every life event and choice that I have made that has positioned me where I am currently situated. I've never been a big destiny guy or a fate guy, but I am now. You may be wondering why I have used our valuable time to relay this information to you, and it's a fair question. And I can tell you this, it relates back directly to our mission to make the victims known. In doing so, while researching to find out about their backgrounds and trying to learn about who they were, beyond just their names or the number they were assigned when they were uncovered in Gacy's crawl space, I discovered a man named David Nelson. David is an author who had the same desire that we have, which is to know the victims of John Wayne Gacy, to know their story. And in getting to know these young men, he has spent the last nine years researching, interviewing, and diving in the exact same way that we have done into the case. And the end result is the birth of an amazing book, a book in which many of these young men's stories will finally be told. The following is just a taste of what you can expect from this incredible book. This is my book. I took nine years to write started it almost a decade ago when I was a student at Northwestern University in the Medill School of Journalism. The title of the book is Boys Enter the House, with a subtitle, The Victims of John Wayne Gacy and the Lives They Left Behind. You have victims missing persons reports like, like Samuel Stapleton or Samuel Dodd that run several dozen pages and actually are rife with clues and rabbit holes and make for pretty interesting reading on their own. But then you have a much shorter missing persons report with John Butkovich or Billy Kindred, who's just barely three pages long, and it's just a, a, a kind of a list of people that he knew and they're not in their phone numbers. That's it. You have Robert Gilroy, who's about 40 pages. And so there's a couple things happening in, when you have those lengthy missing persons reports. And, and one of them is, in the case of Samuel, Samuel Stapleton, you have a mother who is just absolutely on the asses of <laughs> Chicago police, and rightfully so. Um, Samuel Stapleton had run-ins with the police on various occasions. Um, obviously, he was um, into various things in, in Uptown that that caused law enforcement to kind of be after him a little bit. But in one interaction, um, two officers actually took him to the lakefront and beat him up. Um, they, they physically beat him up, um, pretty badly, even though he could, 
he was known for putting up a fight. And he actually, according to this, the story I heard from his siblings, he was ready to take on these two cops himself. At that time, he was probably maybe 13 or 14. Um, and uh, Samuel Stapleton was then taken back into, um, into the, the neighborhoods and dropped off in a rival gang area. Um, Samuel Stapleton had kind of affiliation with a gang on the north side called uh, the Uptown Gaylords. The Gaylords were all over the north side, but in particular, he was kind of affiliated with the Uptown chapter, so to speak. And they dropped him off in Latin King territory, which was obviously the <laughs> the rival gang. Um, he had a, had a friend where the, the, almost the same thing happened, and this friend uh, was beaten up, caught by Latin Kings and beaten up, and walked with a cane for the rest of his life. So Samuel Stapleton was absolutely in danger being dropped off into the rival gang territory. He made it back, um, but... You know, he had these run-ins with the police, and and, and uh, Bessie Stapleton, his mother, uh, went to the police after this lakefront incident and said, he, basically, she got the two cops suspended for a time, which is pretty tenacious and pre- pretty crazy for at the time, um, you know, of the 70s. So she was absolutely, when her son went missing, she was not going to let this go. And and his his father, too, Albert, or Bill, as he was called, um, they were going to stay on the police until they they got everything they needed from them. And similarly with Robert Gilroy, um, who went missing in in September 1977, his father was a police sergeant um, in Chicago police. And so he was kind of doing his own investigation as well. And I'm sure his colleagues were probably maybe giving the case a little bit more special attention. But you do have cases like Billy Carroll, who's whose missing person report is pretty low, or, or John Butkovich, whose missing person is also pretty scarce. Um, and what's sad about John Butkovich's uh, missing persons report is John Gacy's mentioned in it. It's misspelled as Casey or C-A-S-S-E-Y, but you have his name, you have his address, you have his phone number there. It could have ended in 1975 with maybe two or three murders at that point. He could have ended the whole fucking thing. And instead, it keeps going. You could have ended it at Gregory Godzik. Uh, you could have ended it numerous times. Um, so I, I guess I don't have a clear answer on this investigation because sometimes it's very strong. Sometimes it v- gets very close to Gacy and then just stops short. And sometimes it's just the most minimal investigation ever. And I think in some cases, it was because the cops knew these kids, um, had interactions with them, and weren't about to go out and spend time with looking at them because they assumed they were runaways, they'd come home, or they were off getting into some other type of trouble. Um, In some other cases, some of these kids were gay, and I'm sure there was some homophobia at play, um, and they didn't want to look at that any closer than they had to. So it's a range of things that you see for each individual boy and their particular disappearance. Defense Diaries. I'm your host, Bob Mata, and this is episode 18.
We left off on December 22nd, with the creep having just made his third statement to Mike Albrecht. And now, he's packing up his toothbrush because he's about to get shipped off to Cook County Jail, in particular Cermak Memorial Hospital, which is the medical facility of the Cook County Jail, where he will remain until his trial takes place. So the sun sets on another day, and we make our way into the 23rd of December. The excavation at 8213 Somerdale has resumed, as Dan Ginty and the rest of the men assigned with the awful task of unearthing the remains continue about their gruesome task. Meanwhile, the search for the remains of Rob Peace's body continues, and the frustration and the lack of movement on that front has forced both the Peace's and Kozenzak to entertain some rather unconventional tactics to aid in the desperate search for Gacy's last victim. Detectives Tovar, Adams, and Ryan are given the responsibility of transporting Gacy to Cermak Memorial. Now, I'm sure that the boys of the Delta Company will in some strange way miss having the creep at their disposal, especially in light of the fact that Gacy was so very helpful while he was in custody at the Displains Police Department. The burning question now is, will Gacy continue to tell tales out of school? Let's find out. The following comes directly from Tovar's report, dated December 23rd, 1978. Now, the date of this particular report is interesting because it's dated the same day that the activity contained within it actually took place. So there must be some time-sensitive material contained within it And as I've done previously with all of Albrecht's reports, I will read Tovar's report verbatim. On today's date, December 23rd, 1978, Detectives Ryan, Youth Officer Detective Adams, and myself were assigned to transport John Wayne Gacy Jr. to the Cook County Jail compound at 26 in California, where he is to be turned over to jail personnel pending his next court appearance. While en route to the location of the Cook County Jail, John Gacy was quite talkative with the officers who were transporting him to the location, making numerous remarks about the tenacity of the news media who were around when we placed him into the vehicle to transport him to the Cook County Jail. Gacy started talking about various things revolving around the case, and it was at this time that I stopped him and advised him that he should remember that anything he said to us, we would be putting in our report and it could and would be used against him in court. I indicated to him that he did have his rights still to remain silent, and he indicated that he knew his rights and would continue speaking with the officers. So here we go again. This will constitute Gacy's fourth statement to law enforcement, three of which occurred without his attorney being present. Now, Tovar, just like Mike, indicates in this report that he gives Gacy an abbreviated version of a Miranda warning. The fact of the matter is that this particular statement contained within Tovar's report carries very little weight, because like the statements given to Albrecht, this one is not being tape recorded either. And moreover, I'm not clear if Tovar or the other two detectives are taking notes of the conversation. My guess is no. The fact that Tovar claims that he gives the creep the warning does not mean that it actually happened. I mean, who is the court going to believe when my father drafts the motion to suppress the statements? Gacy or the three cops in the car? That's a rhetorical question, by the way. You could be assured that every cop that drafts a report 
especially a report that is as important as the one containing purported statements made by Gacy, has been advised by the state's attorney that they, without fail, must indicate that they interrupted Gacy and advised him that everything that he says can and will be used against him in court. The significance of Gacy's original signed Miranda waiver that he allegedly signed prior to his first statement and what impact that has or does not have on subsequent statements made by Gacy will be explored in depth when we get into the motion phase of the case, which will be in short order. But for now, I'm dying to know what else Gacy says here. So let's continue. In the conversation Gacy was asked by myself, whether it was a fact that the last five people he had told the other officers he killed were dumped in the Displains River. And he stated that as far as he could remember, the last five were the ones that he had thrown off the bridge into the Displains River. I have to interrupt here again. Based on the fact that this is a 40-year-old case and that we are looking back upon it, we have the great advantage of knowing what ended up happening at the end of the day. For the most part, that is. That being said, it is well established that 27 bodies were discovered in the crawl space. Two on the property, Bukovich in the shed garage, and a victim under the driveway slash barbecue pit. That's 29 total on the property. Now, you do the math. If there were five tossed into the river, yeah, that's right. Do we now have 34 victims instead of 33? If we are to believe, number one, what Tovar wrote in the report was accurate, and two, if we believe what Gacy says, then it sure appears so. I've said this before, the river victims were his last victims, and all of them were killed in mid to late 1978. And the creep had a memory like a steel trap. He's not forgetting that number. The 29 on the property... I could see him being off on that number, but not the river. Let's see what else Gacy volunteers to three cops in the car with him. He further indicated that this was one of those that he had killed since July of 78 to the present date. I further asked him if Rob Peast was the last subject he had thrown off the bridge. He indicated that he was. I asked him who was the one just prior to him trying to work backwards as to the identities of the various individuals. As he indicated that it was a guy from Elmwood Park, he knew only as something Joe. I questioned as to what he meant by something Joe, and he indicated that it was some part of the name that he just couldn't remember. I asked him if it was something like Little Joe or Big Joe, and he indicated no, that it was all together but he couldn't remember the exact name. I asked him if it was part of the name and he said no, that as far as he knew, it was only a nickname. As I should realize that most of these that were into this type of sex were only known by a nickname. I asked him if he knew anything further on the name and he said no, but that he was sure that the Joe part was not his real name. He further told me that as far as he knew, the subject was from Elmwood Park and that he was sure of but that at the time, the guy was living somewhere in the area of Clark and Sheridan in the Chicago area. I asked him if he could remember how long prior to Peast he had been thrown into the river, and he could not remember. I asked him if he could tell me anything else about the subject, 
and he said that this guy Joe was a small guy and that he was into masochism and that he had taken care of him. I asked him what he meant by taking care of him, and he said that he had tended to his particular sexual inclinations. In one of your statements, you say that Joe was the victim before peace, and that Joe liked bondage, and you didn't like that stuff. Well, I know I had sex with do you remember anybody that liked bondage? Oh, a couple of times I ran into, ran into some real squirrely people. But I don't, you know, you keep wanting to label them with all victims. I don't think I'm just using the terms in here. Okay, That's what you said. How do you know I said that? Or the, well, uh, what I'm doing is using the terms in here. Do you remember the person before peace was killed? Don't guess. No, I don't know who the hell was. Here you remember. I, you know, I, I, I think it was somebody from Roma Park, but I'm not oh, sure. Oh, I'm sorry. I made a mistake, which I want to correct now. You said that after Joe was killed, that you put him in the trunk of the car, drove to the river, and on the way to dump him, that's when you picked the hitchhiker up to Colorado. Does that help you at all? Don't was on that one. Not on peace. Possible. But you don't recall it. You ever remember picking anybody up at the racetrack, John? Really? Arlington Park racetrack. No. I've never picked up anybody in the suburbs. I've never picked up anybody other than down around Bunkhouse Square or along Clark Street or the uptown area. That's the only areas that I know of that I ever picked anybody up. What about Clark and Lawrence? Clark and Lawrence is uptown. Okay. Washington Park is Bunkhouse. Yeah. You never picked up anybody in the... University uh, Clark and Lawrence. In the Arlington Park racetrack? Hell no, I've never been to that. Wait a minute. Been to the Arlington Park racetrack one time, which was as a clown with James Van Boris. We were there for a cat show put on by David Witt. It's the only time I ever been out. In one of the statements you say that you, or they say that you say that you picked up somebody in Arlington Park, apparently at the racetrack. I don't have any recollection of that. I've never been to the racetrack in Arlington Park, other than for. I was wearing a clown outfit. I was with James Van Boris. We had did the clowning at, at the Hillside Shopping Center. We had drove to Arlington Heights for a cat show put on by David Witt, who was vice president of Bristol Racing. That was the only time in my entire life that I've ever been at Arlington Heights Racing. Jack Hanley grew up in Arlington Heights, unless, unless they fabricate. So, the creep is referring to Joe Mazzara, whose nickname was Mojo. James was born on May 28th of 1958, and he was murdered by Gacy on November 23rd of 1978. He further elaborated that the board that he had previously told us about, making reference to a three-foot-long two-by-four with four holes in it, which he used to tie people up with chains 
was the one that he used on this subject, Joe. He told us that Joe liked pain inflicted upon him and that he had really done a number on him using the board. I asked him how he got the idea of the board and he said that he'd gotten the idea from Elmer Wayne Henley from Texas, who was convicted of mass murder in 1973. So if you're already Googling Elmer Wayne Henley, he's one of serial killer Dean Corll's two accomplices. Dean Corll killed 28 young men in and around Houston, Texas from 1970 to 1973. He strangled a majority of them with a rope and was known to have used handcuffs as well. He was nicknamed the Candyman because his family had previously owned a candy company and he was known to give free candy to children. Gacy and Coral had a ton of shit in common and the documentary The Clown and the Candyman dives into those parallels to try to determine whether or not there was a legit connection between the two or if it was merely coincidence. Now, if you recall in our last episode in the clip of the creep that we played for you, he addressed the similarities between himself and Henley, even though it was really Dean Coral, and Gacy claimed all that he knew about it was from one or two articles that he had read about Henley. Is this BS? I don't know. But I do know that the flow of information in the 70s was a far, far cry from what it is today. You basically had two sources, TV news from three separate channels, and newspapers, and that's it. Remember when I said that Gacy's memory was like a steel trap? Yeah, well, here it is on display, because it was back in 1973 that Henley shot his co-accomplice, Dean Coral in the back. So we have to assume that Gacy is recollecting an article or two that he had read five years earlier. But considering that it seems like Gacy employed many of Coral's techniques in his own dastardly deeds, maybe that makes perfect sense. Or... Maybe there was a connection of some kind. That is part two of the Gacy tapes material. So we're going to put that on the back burner for now. Back to the ride to Cook County with the clown and friends. In conversations with Gacy about the subject known as something Joe, he also mentioned that Joe was a real short individual. Not very big at all. In other conversations with Gacy, he wanted to know whether Mike Royko or Walter Jacobson of the Sun-Times and WBBM Television, respectively, had telephoned for him. He said that they were his friends and that they knew him quite well, and he figured they'd be calling for him. We advised him that they had not called us as of yet, and that we would relay any message to him if, in fact, they did call. Detective Adams of the Youth Bureau also asked him, whether he knew if Rob Peast had suffered any pain after he strangled him. And he stated that he did not remember at this time. He said that he had a phone call and that he was not sure if he had at all. However, then he changed his mind and he said he didn't think that Peace had suffered at all. Other conversations were general in nature and not anything of evidentiary value. Therefore, that is all the information there is for this report. So there you have it, Gacy's fourth statement. He has now added Joe Mazzara to his ever-growing body count. I noticed, however, in this particular statement that Jack Hanley didn't make an appearance. Or if he did, Tovar certainly didn't relay that information. By the way, that board that he stated that he did a number on James Mazzara with 
is the very board that poor Jeff Rignall, you know, one of Gacy's surviving victims that we introduced you to, who the Chicago police completely ignored, and who was tortured by not just Gacy, but Gacy and another man for two days before Gacy, for reasons unknown, let him go? We're going to talk more about Jeff Rignall when we get to the trial, because he seems like he'd be an excellent witness for the state. Or does he? Let's check in on the dig that's taking place at the House of Horrors. Cook County Sheriff's Police Genty, Humbert, Kulovitz, Jones, Zekas, and Taylor are down in the pits of hell, and they have finally removed Tim McCoy and Buckovich's remains from the crawl. And while that awful task was being completed, under the area of where McCoy's foot was located, another skeleton was unearthed. Victim number three had been located along with his shoes and some vestiges of his clothing. Victim number four was located under the feet of victim number three, along with his wallet, which was recovered near the victim's torso. Victim four's pants and socks were also recovered. So remember the trenches that Cram and Rossi were digging? Yeah, these aren't those. Because this particular trench could not have been dug by Rossi and Cram because quite simply, they didn't know Gacy in 72. So this trench was all Gacy. The thing about the first trench where Tim McCoy and the other three were buried is that they were not stacked on top of one another, but instead formed a head-to-toe human chain in the trench. It was the only portion of the entire crawl that had a concrete slab over it. And this concrete was poured early on because his second wife, Carol, was complaining about the rancid odor coming from the basement. So what's the significance of that? Well, it's this. Gacy had claimed that Bukovich was the second victim that he had killed, but that was in 1975. Now, we've never personally believed that Gacy went from 72 to 75 without killing again prior to John Bukovich. So this first trench with the four bodies would seem to indicate to me that he killed at least all four of these victims before Bukovich in 75. And it wasn't until he poured that concrete slab down there, which we don't know the exact date it was poured, but we do know that it was well before he poured the concrete in the garage in 75. So in terms of the unidentified victims, trying to narrow down when they were actually killed is exceptionally important. It's crucial because they have assigned rough dates to the six remaining unidentified victims. However, that makes no sense whatsoever because they have absolutely no evidence to rely on in order to assign those dates. The bottom line is this. If we can narrow down that the first four victims were actually killed between, say, 72 and 74, we can narrow down the search parameters for young men that went missing only between those years as opposed to having to try to narrow it down for the entire six-year span. This is all coming in part two, so you'll have to wait for it. In the meantime, let's see what the man obsessed is up to on the 23rd of December. Well, it turns out that this is the exact date that Joe Kozenzak injected his little friend into evidence in the Gacy case. 
aside from, of course, his complaint for warrant on the 21st. No, it's the only report that he ever personally prepared out of the hundreds of reports that we have poured through. We will publish this report on Patreon for our defense team members to inspect. I think there is no better way to convey the report than to do as I always do, which is to read it verbatim. So here it comes. This is a continuing report in regards to the investigation of the disappearance of Robert J. Peast. A male white, age 15, date of birth, 16 March 1963, 5 foot 8 inches, brown hair with a slim build. During the course of my investigation, evidence was gathered through a search warrant indicating that the missing boy was in the residence belonging to John Gacy, located at 8213 West Somerdale in Norwich, Illinois, within 48 hours after he was reported missing from Nissan Drugs on 1920 Tui Avenue, Des Plaines, Illinois. The search warrant referred to was a search warrant executed on 13 December 1978 at 8213 West Somerdale Avenue, Norwich, Illinois, signed by Judge Marvin Peters. Recovered during that search was a customer receipt numbered 36119 from a film developing envelope with the name and address of Nissan Pharmacy stamped on it in ink. Further investigation revealed that this receipt had last been in the possession of Robert Peast immediately prior to the time he had disappeared. On December 21st, 1978, I had occasion to speak to Officer Robert Schultz, star number 215 of the Des Plaines Police Department. Officer Schultz had been a Des Plaines police officer for the past eight and a half years, and he told me on Tuesday, December 19, 1978, at 7.30 p.m., that he was at the house of John Wayne Gacy at 8213 West Somerdale, Norwich, Illinois, on a surveillance assignment. And at that time, John Gacy approached Officer Schultz's police vehicle and asked him if he'd like to enter his residence. Officer Schultz responded in the affirmative and entered the Gacy residence via the kitchen entrance with Mr. Gacy. Once inside, Officer Schultz immediately detected an odor similar to that of a putrefied human body. Officer Schultz further indicated that during his tenure as a displaced police officer, he has smelled the odor of at least 40 putrefied human bodies and that the odor he detected in the Gacy residence smelled similar to the odor of putrefied bodies he had smelled in the past. Based on all the information given, and with the approval of the Cook County State's Attorney's Office, Assistant State's Attorney Larry Finder, this reporting officer prepared a complaint for search warrant and a search warrant. Said documents were taken in front of Judge Marvin Peters on this date. Upon review of the complaint for search warrant, Judge Marvin Peters approved said warrants, and the reporting officer, along with other officers from the Des Plaines Police Department and the Cook County Sheriff's Police Department, went to the residence of John Wayne Gacy, located at 8213 West Somerdale, Norwich, Illinois, and entered the residence per authority of the warrant issued earlier this evening. The warning question was issued for the search for the body of Robert Peast and or remains thereof. Warrant dated December 21st, 1978. After entering the house in question, a search of the crawl space area was started by investigators. And after a brief time period, a bone was unearthed, which appeared to be that of a human arm. 
At this time, digging was stopped, pending the arrival of the Cook County Examiner. So that's it. That report, which is dated December 23rd, but which was clearly written by Kozenzak on December 21st, the very same evening that the warrant was issued, is the one and only time that in the entire police investigation file, which will eventually be turned over to the defense attorneys, that one of the members of the Des Police Department ever indicates that the photo receipt was found in the home during the search on December 13th. And it was written by the only man who could have written it, Joe Kozenzak. I have to say that I was very tempted to do a, it's your favorite time, it's my favorite time, it's planting evidence 101 time. But no, Kozenzak does not get that honor bestowed upon him. Not now, not ever. So the complaint for search warrant is a court document. It's part of the court file. Police reports are not. Not only are they not filed with the clerk and made a part of the permanent record, they are not admissible as evidence because they constitute hearsay evidence. Now, the purpose of a police report is to provide a narrative and create a chain of custody for the lawyers that are trying the case. While we have concluded that Humbert's evidence log was never tendered to my father in Amaranti, this particular report was. And it was this and this alone that cemented the story of the receipt being found in the kitchen trash in the minds of the defense attorneys. In particular, my father, when he drafted his motion to suppress the evidence, this lone document sat on his desk, telling its lies without speaking a word. The fact that Kozenzak felt compelled to run back to the station after the search on the 21st, at at least midnight, while Gacy was sitting in the station confessing maybe in the next room, which he of course knew, speaks volumes as to his mindset on that particular night. And it all came together beautifully for him. Because now he can focus on the thing that matters to him most. And that is figuring out a way to find Rob Peace's body, which we will examine on the next episode of Defense Diaries. Once again, we are supplying the number to our victim's hotline in the hopes that someone out there knows something so that maybe we can bring a little bit of peace to a family or families that have been in pain for 40 plus years. And that number is 844-78-VIC-23. That's 844-78-VIC-23. And as always, I'd like to thank all of our listeners who consistently listen to the show and our defense team members from Patreon. We adore you guys. You guys mean so much to us because without you guys, I would just be an old man talking about an old case. Talk to you next time. Okay, we know where the body's at. You know, know exactly where the body's at.